Joining us today on the inaugural episode of The Shift is Bracken Darrell, CEO of Logitech. Since joining the company a decade ago, Logitech's racked up awards, not just for products and design, but for its commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. The company's been named to Dow Jones Sustainability Index, and in the last two years alone, Bracken's been awarded both the P&G Alumni Innovation Award and the prestigious Edison Achievement Award. We're so happy to call him both a friend and colleague. Bracken, welcome to the show. So to start, I really want you to give the audience a sense of your career, where you've been, and what you're doing now. So do you mind starting off with a quick introduction? Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Bracken Darrell, and, and as it says on the screen, I go by either Bracken Darrell or Daryl Bracken. It's reversible. People get it backwards usually more often than they get it right. I uh, grew up in Kentucky. I became an accountant out of school after majoring in English, which makes me a strange person. I uh, then went from there, went back to school, and be- went into uh, went worked for Procter and Gamble for several years, actually twice. I worked for GE. And then I made my way through the years to this company called Logitech. And I started here 10 years ago, and I've been the CEO for the last nine years. And it's been an incredibly exciting ride. That's awesome. And one of the things that Sean and I talk about all the time, and I think we've talked about with you in various environments and situations, and I think is top of mind for most leaders today, is this idea of culture. And how do you build a really strong people culture And it's something that Logitech is really well known for. So can you talk a little bit about your journey in terms of, first of all, just getting to the place where you felt like culture was something important? Have you always felt it's important or is that, was that an evolution just in terms of, of your character and personality? First of all, I I read the same things everybody else does. So I, I have been hearing for years, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Culture is the most important thing in any organization, and so I, I kind of grew up thinking of culture super important and, and people were talking about culture fit all the time. And I was always very fixated on that. And then when I came to Logitech, and especially after I hired my CHRO, Kirsty Russell, who's there today, you know, she said, oh, you know, the, the real way to figure out what our culture is to do like an archaeological dig and, and really try to dig back into the time and understand what, what's at the root of it. And we did that. And then we, and then we defined the culture we wanted it to be, because I always found culture very hard to talk about, like everybody else probably does. Forget about what we are. Let's just figure out what we kind of like to be. So we came up with these 10 words. It was eight in the beginning, and they, they stood for what we were aspiring to be as a culture. And then you could kind of rate each one in a small group and say, we either we were really like that or we're not at all like that yet. And they're still out there today. So that was really the, the early stages of working on our culture. Now, I will say, just to be a little controversial on your very first podcast here that i think we've overdone culture now i think culture you know like so many things you know we've we've swung the pendulum pendulum too far and it's gone at the expense of individuality i'm a bigger fan of talking about the power of individuality and how a culture can bring that out of you or let you be that rather than just talk about trying to fit into the culture yeah and sean tell me what you're seeing and, and thinking about from this perspective, like, are you hearing this from all the different CEOs that you're working with in terms of what Bracken just mentioned, like the balance of culture and individual individuality, if I can even say that word? I'm hearing from the CEOs that I look to for guidance and the folks that I spend time with more about the importance of culture being a way to scale the things that must be scaled in terms of judgment. What are the non-negotiables? What are the things that we do need everybody swimming in the same direction on so that we're not spinning our wheels and, 
adding to slowly things that we that we must all agree while all creating an environment where we can't where we do allow to feel the culture is included enough and, and open enough can bring that individuality but before going further on that path i want to push bracken again i think i can talk a little bit about the how when he got to logitech he revisited culture and thought about intentionally building. I'm, I'm interested in the why. We're just starting the conversation, so I think we should lay the groundwork there. So Bracken, I do my research when I meet people, right? And so Bracken is one of the few people who I'm close to now who I haven't known for 10 years. So before we, we got to for a Zoom, he actually had a company that he was championing led by a Black woman that he, he was trying to raise her, her round, and, and that's how we got connected. I didn't know him. Uh, and you know his title, so I did some digging, and I found a friend of ours, Jason Maiden, who was actually at Logitech, and I asked who is this Bracken guy, somebody who could work anywhere. He's done some incredible things in his career, and I said, what what brought Logitech, and why should I be time with Bracken? And I'm gonna read the text to make you a little bit of sense. Then I want to get to the why. Why do you think about culture the way that you do? Jason said, Bracken is the consummate servant leader, always striving to listen without bias to lead without egoism, and to serve without an expectation of reciprocity. I truly hope that other CEOs study and learn from his style of people management. So we're here to study and learn from the style of people management, so I'm excited about that. Jason saying something like that about somebody, he has my utmost respect, and he does not use words lightly, so those are powerful words from him. So one, if you want to respond to what Jason said, which I think is, is an incredible thing to say about a leader, but then two, tell us about the why. Like Why is culture even important to begin with? You. you and I both hold Jason in such high regard. You know, in fact, I just saw Jason in Brooklyn uh, yesterday. You know, I'm a monster fan of his, and boy, he's really a game changer. It's very flattering that he would say it about me. I, I hope I earn it half the time. You know, I think what Jason is probably referring to that why is culture important? I mean, I think maybe it's why is the why important? You know, maybe that's the most important question underneath culture is why does the company exist or why does the organization exist and why are you here? Why am I here? Why have I chosen to work here besides just getting a paycheck? And it all really starts with that. And it took me a long time in my career to realize that, that culture actually starts with the purpose of the company. And so I, I think when I came, I didn't immediately adopt that. I'd worked on purpose for as long as I can remember. Every organization I went to, Braun's the one that I think I remember the most vividly before I came to Logitech. I, I really worked on, okay, what is the purpose of bra in the company? You know, this is the shavers and coffee makers and stereos. And I met a guy named Nikos Morgiganis who wrote a book called Purpose before you know, Simon Sinek had written the book Why. And I talked to him about it and I really wrestled with it. And I started to learn how hard it is for an existing company that's been around for a while for you to define your why clearly. So when I came to Logitech, I started on it right away. And I think it took me until George Floyd to really get it right. Not me, but us. And I think at that point, we had been building pieces of culture, and they were all headed in the same general direction. But there's nothing as clarifying as a crisis, especially one that's been in place for 400 years, to bring real clarity to your thinking. And I think it's the after the George Floyd murder, we re-scripted our purpose in a way that I think flows right through the culture. And I think that's probably most of what Jason was talking about. And Bracken, how did you do that in a way that really stayed away from a lot of companies that we saw on the anniversary was yesterday. And so this is top of mind for many people that wasn't just performative. Like how did you hold yourself and your team accountable to make sure that the commitments you were making around some of the changes and those intrinsic changes that take time 
we're deeper than just words. You know, it starts with real conviction. Everybody has their story. My story is that I grew up in the South. My parents were very progressive. I thought I was, I grew up one of the good guys. Both of you know the story already, so I'll, I'll go through it quickly for the, anybody who's listening. You know, I'd been on the diversity council or whatever you want to call it for every company I've been in or most of them. And by the time I got to Logitech, I was working on diversity, you know, doing all the stuff that I thought I was supposed to be doing. And then when George Floyd's murder happened, I was sitting at my kitchen table about five o'clock in the morning, three days later, thinking, God, you know, I remember Rodney King and so many other events like this. Why is it just never stopping? I got started thinking about apartheid in South Africa. And I thought, why did it take Nelson Mandela coming out of jail to really completely turn it around? Where were those white leaders? There must have been white leaders like me who were good guys who were. And then I thought, wait a minute. They didn't say anything. I haven't said anything publicly about, I've never said anything publicly about racism. I've never said anything in, in writing, like on a LinkedIn post. And so I immediately wrote a LinkedIn post. It was like getting hit in the head with a two by four and it never stopped hurting. And I, and I realized that I had never stepped up. You know, what today people are calling anti-racist, really actively anti-racist. And there's no other place to be. And I, so I called all my friends. I didn't know Sean, you at the time, but I called all my friends who were black and I apologized. And and every one of them said the same thing. They didn't say, oh, it's okay. You know, They just said, well, at least now you're doing it. And that was a big deal for me. And, and when you have that much conviction on something, and I did, I also have a whole lot of conviction around the environment and sustainability. And I have conviction around people. Fortunately, they all fit right into the purpose of Logitech very cleanly. We're here to enable all people, all people to fulfill their passions in a way that's good for the planet. Once you have a purpose that's well, that crisply defined, you can pretty much easily flow that through every part of the company from the supply chain to your suppliers, suppliers, into the what you're doing for customers, into the inside of the company, your, all of your practices, and then out in the communities you serve. And so that's really what we've done, and we put metrics on it, and we're after it. And and I will say, you know, this is a plug for you. Anybody listening is probably already a fan, but Cindio is a key part of it from a pay practice standpoint. We're really we're using it. In fact, I just went through it again yesterday. We've cycled through twice now, and it's, it's working for us. Yeah, that's great to hear. And it's such a clear and concrete action plan that you've laid out. And I'm sure that's what makes also your people know that you truly do value them and you're not kind of just putting statements to it, which I think is is really critical. One thing, Sean and Maria, that I that we did this year, I, my leadership team is 23 people. It's pretty big. And I pay a base and we pay a bonus, you know, like a lot of companies. And this year, the bonus was based, as it always is, on top line growth and bottom line growth. That's it. Except for one thing, I gave myself one. Normally, I have flexibility to say how, how hard was the difficulty of the dive? What was the backdrop for this? So I can judge somebody up or down some based on that. This year, I only used one variable, and they knew it at the beginning of the year, which was how they did on their own, the equity and inclusion goals. And some people got taken down and some people got taken up. Fortunately, more up than down, but that's... I'm not a big fan that says you just got to like pay to everything. I think that can be overdone, but I do think it sends a great message. It highlights something that, that Marie and I believe in part, we've got a, a mutual advisor in Denise Sterentel who talks about it, but things like diversity, equity, inclusion, that's not something to be siloed into the DEI, the DEI leads responsibility. That's something that the CEO and the executive team will need to, need to be owning. It's not going to be inculcated throughout the entire culture of the organization. So, you're giving all kind of equals of, of why Jason would say that about you.
I'm curious to what both of you think. So being a workplace equity platform, we help companies analyze and resolve pay and opportunity gaps, much like we're doing with Logitech. And I can't tell you the number of people that have come up to me recently and said things like, well, aren't you so nervous about your business now that we're headed into this time of economic volatility where companies are no longer going to be motivated to do good because nobody's proven out yet that this is good for business. I obviously vehemently disagree with that. I think that when you value your people, that is creating long-term business value because you're embedding workplace equity in a way that is a core tenant of great management and leadership, much like you're doing, Bracken. What would you both say to that comment in terms of this is going to go out the window when profits become sort of number one again, and this has just been a nice to have, a flash in the pan? I mean, how do you respond to those statements in a way that you feel is is compelling? I have two answers to that. The first one is, this is wrong. It's somebody who still is is probably naively of the perspective that it takes trade-offs, trade-offs meaning trade-downs to get to diversity, equity, inclusion. And it doesn't, it actually is. There's so much inequity and lack of balance in the world of diverse hiring, promoting, buying, creating for customers, that if you really unlock diversity, equity, inclusion end to end in your company, I would almost guarantee you you'll be a much better performing company, not a little bit better. I used to carry this chart around with me that showed design companies relative to average companies. And it was total shareholder returns, public companies. It was 3X. It was just obvious that design's better. You'll be able to do the same chart. I'm sure you could now if you could pick out the ones that are really, really all in on diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm sure it will be a 3X return or something like that. You know, the business cases, I think, is pretty easy to make. And people who don't who don't know that yet are either very naive or they're not really faced, they're avoiding the truth. And that might seem kind of harsh, but I believe it. The second thing is, no matter what, it's the right thing to do, period. Even if the first thing weren't true, but it is, it makes it a no-brainer. The second thing is, we must do it. We can't live in a world that's unfair. I don't care what the economic environment is. I agree with everything Bracken just said. The thing that I would add is that folks have just spent two years you know, in this environment where they've been at home thinking about what matters to them. And I think the majority of the best talent out there, if there's the option to work at an organization where values are aligned, they're going to choose to work at that organization over one where that values alignment doesn't exist. And I think while many folks have, like our 20 news cycle has moved on from a lot of the issues that we were talking about two summers ago, but young people are looking at are going through the experience that Brack went through two years ago. And as they're starting their careers or as they're entering the that acceleration point in their career, that acceleration period, are going to make choices based off of who's doing things equitably. And there are some people who aren't worried about that, but I think the significant majority of, of folks, definitely Gen Z and most millennials, are making decisions based off of off of who's getting that right. Totally agree. I don't think like bring your dog today matters as much. But I do think fundamental things like, are you equitably <laughs> and, uh, you know, do you run an inclusive organization? That kind of stuff matters. Totally, totally agree. Yeah. And on the sustainability side, I mean, Bracken, you've done so much there too. And I'm interested to know, is this carrot or stick or both? I mean, we're seeing so much movement here in terms of Gensler and the SEC starting to look at the S in ESG around human capital. You're hearing from CFOs in particular saying they've been super focused on capital allocation. And now that purview is moving to the human capital allocation and how human capital is valued. We're seeing pay transparency legislation accelerate tremendously. It was 
New York City, and then it was New Jersey, Colorado, Washington State, Oregon. On Tuesday, the California State Senate passed the California Medium Pay Gap Disclosure Bill, which included pay transparency, but also companies will have to make public their pay report. So as you think about kind of expanding your purview beyond sustainability, I mean, what do you think are going to be the things that are most, have the biggest impact on companies? Is it a blend of sort of this legislation and compliance with the demands from employees? Or or where have you seen that work on the climate side? And what would you say the human capital side can learn from the past five years around sustainability? It's a great and challenging question. I I think on the environmental sustainability side, I think it has taken, for some reason, it's taken more legislation than activation, if you want to call it that. There are not enough companies that are out here slamming their fist on the table saying, we're going to be carbon neutral now, or we're going to be carbon neutral in five years. It's still, people are still talking about 2040 and 2050. And those are really way out there. And I don't know about anybody else, but it doesn't feel like we have that much time. And everything I read tells me we don't. So I think there's enough urgency that I think the, as you call it, the stick or the the laws they're requiring and driving are, are in place and they're coming. And then I think there's a, which is not to say there aren't a lot of companies doing a lot of stuff. There are, but I don't think the goals are ambitious enough. And there's too much talk about things that really fall in scope one and scope two and not scope three, which is in our case, for example, 99% of the carbon we put out. I hope it doesn't take, first of all, I think we should aggressively go after the same legislative approaches to the human capital side as we did, as we are on sustainability. And in fact, they should be faster and, and more severe. I think we should require a lot more transparency and, and a lot more of everything. I hope that that side isn't going to take as long now that the lights are on. George Floyd was a moment that should have come hundreds of years ago, but poor George Floyd was murdered and it came and it had such an impact that I think there are so many people in the world that are awake now who weren't. I don't think the stick will drive as much as the carrot now. I think the carrot's going to rule. And the companies that get in the front of this are going are to win. And the companies that lag behind are going to lose. What do you think the blockers are for the for the companies that are lagging behind? Like, are you having conversations with other CEOs and getting out of any of that? What, what are you telling them? I think it's CEO conviction. That is the single variable. And that might make the CEO sound really important. And the CEO is not that important most of the time. In this one, the CEO is almost everything. It's the allocation of resources. It's the setting of goals. It's the definition of the purpose. It's everything. So I really think every CEO needs to say, this is my job. This is one of my, if not my primary job. Yeah, and it's the modeling, right? I mean, you've got to be modeling this for everybody. And people, our people in our organizations are smart and they watch much like, you know, our children. If you have children, they're always watching you and they're watching what you say versus what you do. And I think this is one of those opportunities where you're right. There are many cases where the CEO is not that important, but in this particular case, the way that we behave, the way we act, the way we hire, the way we promote in particular sets an example and a model for our teams. And how has that been with your leadership team? Did you have folks on your LT that were there before this transformation started to happen with you? And and how did you bring them along in terms of, I'm really changing. I am changing at my core in the deepest sense of the word of what it means to be human. 
did they go along with you? Did you have to sort of move some on and out of role or how did that work? How did that go? We are a work in process, you know, like almost every other company. We admit we have so far to go, so we're not at all there yet. I wouldn't pretend that I could write the, the workbook for how to do this for other people. For me, it was, it's been very personal and expressing my own failings for so much of my life as my leadership career, explaining why it's so critical that we flip the, the script here in a way that you can tell is real. I mean, very, very honest it has probably really helped. Now, I think a lot, it's also scared them, some of them. Because they said, man, I don't feel that much conviction. Or I, I hear where he's coming from. I can tell he does, but I'm not. I'm not there yet, I believe, but I'm not. And this feels like an important thing, but not, not as important as it does to him. So I think those are realities. You know, as a leader, you just have to face into. And you can fire everybody and start over again. Or you can move most people to the right place as fast as you can. And then a few might never make it. And then you have to make decisions. But I think... I'm just a one-way street on this. I, I'm the nicest guy in the world, as both of you know. I'm a super nice. If I do say so myself, I'm a really nice person. But on this one, I'm not very nice. You I'll, know, I'll co-sign on that. You're, you're a nice guy. <laughs> I'm not a very nice person on this one. I feel so strongly about it that I just don't think we really have any – there's no other way to look at it. I feel the same way about environmental sustainability. So did you actually lose anybody on this? Did you lose any key contributors? And beyond that, were you surprised by the response by, by your team in any way, positive or, or negatively? No, I haven't lost anybody. I, I think I haven't been surprised by anybody on the negative side. I've been really, I was actually really pleased how many positive notes. You tend to notice the positive and forget the negative. I mean, I, I was really pleased how many positive notes and calls and things I got early on when I really went out there and started speaking on behalf of the company. And at the time, I wasn't even fully digesting how much I was speaking for the company. I was really speaking for myself, but I knew I was speaking. I knew as a CEO, you can't pretend you're not speaking for the company, yeah. but I didn't quite digest how much it was that. I think the support was really encouraging. My leadership team was super, super promoting of this. They really believed in it. And then they started to get the reverberations back within the company. Very, very positive reverberations that I don't think anybody, I don't know, they probably should have expected it, but you know, we were getting lots of positive feedback back. And I would say that any negative or challenging feedback was outnumbered 100 to 1 maybe a thousand to one. It's good to hear. One question I have for you that's a, a bit controversial and not scripted at all, so pass if you want. But I think, I think we're under tremendous pressure right now as CEOs, and you have a much larger company than I do, to speak out on a variety of social issues. And so when you look at that, how do you decide which ones where you really take a stand either internally or externally or both and which ones, how do you maintain that sense of, of inclusiveness and culture and, and how do, what goes through your head? Like what's your decision matrix on where and when to speak out and how do you deal with that? Well, I am so fortunate to have someone named Sam Harnett as my general counsel. And she, you know, George Floyd was my deep seated reaction, but after George Floyd, and we obviously talked about it at the board level, Sam built a framework for us to think about things that we would speak out about. And, and we have three different levels. One is we're going to lead. One is we're going to follow pretty quickly. 
And the other, and the third one is we're not going to, we're just going to be silent. We have all three of them. And those are for external communication only inside. We have a different set of way to think about it. But, you know, I think it's been super helpful as we've gone into things like Ukraine and the, and the right to choose and gun control. And every time they come up, how do we handle them? And we go back to the framework and the framework's not black and white. It's, it, you really have to think through it. But it really does place us in the world. Is this an area where you can really have an impact? Because if you speak out about everything, you're at risk of not speaking out at all, or not making sense because it's just noise. And so we don't speak out about everything, but we, we have our, so far, we've picked out a few, and I think that list will grow as we bump into more problems in the world. But but I, ha- I feel very confident, thanks to Sam and the group of people around me and my board who've been very cooperative on that framework, that we'll be, we're speaking out the things that we should be. And we'll share that framework with you if you like. Yeah, I think that's that's so smart to do that when you're not in the moment. It's guidance that we give to CEOs and executives is defining things when you're not in that emotional in, in the middle of the of the actual firestorm allows you to make more clear decisions. So everything for values to distinct frameworks that's got to guide you in those kind of moments, in those moments of crises. So true. And by the way, I, have, I should probably never listen to this, but Wendy Wendy Becker, my board chair so good at this at really trying to define frameworks it's probably my weakness i need somebody to force frameworks on me sometimes i'm very intuitive and so it's really helpful for me to have sam and wendy around me saying hey you know we need a framework for that i I get it you're probably right but you're you're wrong some of the time you need a framework yeah and it is a different framework in terms of communication internally versus externally because you're setting a different tone and i think with our people we always have to come first with the heart and mind of of being human and having empathy and understanding that people are going through a lot with everything they're seeing in the macro environment. And I think my team has certainly been very outspoken about this in terms of what they want to see from leadership and how they want to be communicated with when things are going on that impact their ability to focus, their ability to get work done, their ability to be vulnerable in a way that's conducive to work. So I think that framework is really smart because those aren't always the topics that you want to go public with, but they are things that you need to have a really open dialogue with your own with your own team about. And I think that's where leadership is changing. You know, I don't remember this at early days in my career, particularly being in tech, being one of the few women in tech. These weren't things that CEOs were talking to their employees about. And now I think it really is taking center stage in terms of how we interact with each other. I do too. I think you're right about I know you're right about it changing in, in 59. So it's, you can imagine how much has changed in my career. In, for internal communications, we started something when I first got there. I'm not really sure why we did it, but we said any question you ask will be answered, no matter what it is. And we try to stick to that, you know, and it can be a personal question, like, what do you think about gun control, Bracken? And we'll answer it internally. And we ask people not to share that externally because we need to, as a company, ideally make a choice. Sometimes it could leak out. We we could live with that if if it happens, it happens. But we try to do that. And I think what it does is it makes it more comfortable talking about both sides. Some of these issues are so hard. I mean, on the one hand, it's a choice of, it's a woman's a choice of a woman to control her own body. On the other hand, it's it's murder. Those two views are so strong that you can't, how, how can you say, well, you're crazy to think the, that way? You know, you can't because they're both really powerful, deep, sometimes spiritual feelings. So I think being able to live in, a, in an environment where you can have both those views on the table is really critical. But I don't think, at least for me, I don't want to spend any more of my career where I can't share kind of what I think. 
with the right respect for all the people who think differently than me. And it would be nice if every company could do that, but I'm not sure you can. I, I don't know the environment that you work in or, or the two of you work in or the environments that other people work in, particularly big companies. I, I, I would never say that everybody should do what we do, we're doing there, but it is really comfortable for me. And it's also really important that you show that you can run a successful Fortune 200 company by leading that way and by building that kind of culture. I think even just knowing that that's an option is really powerful for other leaders to know that it doesn't have to be the way of put your head down and accept how things are and this is the way it's going to be and live with it. You're a walking, talking example of how things can be done differently and more companies are, are going to follow suit. I do things differently and sometimes I do things the wrong way. What's the moment where you thought it's the wrong way? You know, I've, I think I've made more mistakes in this job than I've done things right, but, I, but they tended to be insignificant ones most of the time. But the big mistakes I've made have not, uh, they obviously haven't cost me my job, but they're, but boy, they've been full of learning. You know, I've made some mistakes with my board. When I first came into the company, this this is a little off topic, but I really viewed my board more as a uh, kind of a hassle than a help and more as a bureaucracy than construction. And I lived that way for a very long time. And I'd be very defensive if they said something like, hey, we really don't understand your strategy. I, mean, I took it completely personally. I'm like, well, I just presented my strategy. What, you know, are you saying that I don't understand a strategy? And it took me years to finally get over that. I was so insecure, I guess, or something. I'm over it now. You know, now I'm totally fine with it. But it took me a long time to get there. One thing I'll go back to, one thing that's really helped me, and I would recommend to anybody who's a, a relatively public figure. If I'm a public figure, I'm a tiny public figure. They can't see the air quotes on the podcast. But yeah, Bracken was doing air quotes, as he said. I'm a public figure on a very small scale, let's say. But I do get comments underneath things that I put up post. And and whenever I get a comment, even if it's a really nasty one, I always, 100% of the time, you know, where they completely disagree with something, I, I send that person a note and I say, hey, can we have a talk? You know, I always get something out of hearing somebody who's on the other side of that, no matter how bad the, the comment is. And I would say only about one out of five times do I actually get the person on the other end of a Zoom call or a phone call. And not either probably because they're scheduling reasons or something, or they just really didn't want to engage in that. They're like, you aren't going to listen to me anyway. But when I do get them, every single time I get them on, I learn something. Every single time. It's super interesting. I would encourage everybody to do that. I've seen you do that. And until this moment, I wonder if it was actually you, if you had a team that was actually going through and managing that. So that's amazing that that's actually you going through engaging with folks. And uh, I mean, yeah, you are you are a top five LinkedIn follow. If you're not on Bracken yet on, on LinkedIn, hit the button. You just doubled my followers to 30. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I mean, we've had a lot of conversations at our small company about how do we engage in these topics on Slack? And we have a couple of leaders that have emerged in our company. And one woman in particular who is just so passionate and committed to disagreeing agreeably and bringing conflict to the forefront in a way that's gracious and graceful and just full of, of poise and respect. And I've been so proud of my team watching how they engage in some of these tough conversations in a way that's open. And this is all asynchronous. So it's not like an in-person conversation. You really have to continue to have that mission and priority of respect and dignity in every conversation, regardless of the opinion. So I think, I think you're portraying and modeling that. I mean, your people are watching the way that you engage on LinkedIn with others. And so you're you're setting that example from the very top. And I think that that probably pays off in how your people interact with one another. It's an interesting thing in the world we've been in now for the last you know three years where we've all been, you know, 
I would say probably in a way we've had more interaction, not less because of the pandemic. It's just been different in nature and I can't filter or see it outside of my win- the window that I get to look through every day. So I don't know much about how people are reacting and whether they're respecting each other. But in our surveys, it looks pretty good. I mean, you know, you would, I'd, I'd say generally it feels like it's pretty healthy, but I don't know. It's a, it's a, you're raising a good question. Do I really know whether people are treating each other with a, as much respect as I hope? I don't know for sure, but I think so. Well, we're getting to the end of our time. Any last thoughts you want to leave with folks, Bracken, or any last thoughts, Sean, in terms of interaction you've observed or seen? Just to revisit what we're just talking about, like, you know, the encouraging thing, I know you're not 100% sure if folks are treating people, treating each other the way that you, you want. I have no doubt that the work is being done by both of you to actually ensure that you're creating the environment where you're modeling that. So I'm honored to call you both friends and respect tremendously about both of you. Bracken, we didn't talk at all about all the things you're doing quietly beyond just leading the tech in a more inclusive, initial, and equitable way. I mentioned that we met, you wanted to discuss a company you had backed. Can you talk more about the companies that you're investing in and, and the entrepreneurs that you're working with and, and even just like how you kind of evolved your thinking on that post-George Floyd? Post-George Floyd, I, it was the most transformative event in my whole life. That's not an exaggeration. I really, it really, it really made me question who I am. I thought I was this really good guy and I realized I really wasn't and in a really fundamental way. I wasn't doing it. I wasn't acting on what I, I thought I was about. So I flipped around everything inside the company. We had these seven goals that we set within the coverage from suppliers. All the way. And then on the, in my personal life, I really said, okay, what am I doing? And I looked at my angel investing, which is where you're headed, I think. And I, and I said, what does my angel investing look like? And I had pretty good representative of Latinx because I speak Spanish and I just, you know, for whatever reason, people found me. I had one black male entrepreneur who was a good friend, one of my son's good friends, Paul Alakalabi from Ghana. And, and that's it. And I probably had done 30 or 40 investments. And I was like, why? And I thought, it's systemic. I'm just waiting for whoever comes to me. And whoever comes to me, I've created this cloud around me. And that's the way it goes. And so I decided to flip it. So I started reaching out to entrepreneurs. I focused on black men and women entrepreneurs. And probably I've done 80% of my investments since then have been in black men and women entrepreneurs and in venture funds that tend to invest in them and and women entrepreneurs. I was probably better represented in women, but now it's been so exciting for me to see how much incredible talent is out there. And they were always out there. It just didn't come to me because I didn't I didn't look like the doors were open. Nobody was saying, hey, welcome to the... So it's now flipped. And you, you know, it's really interesting, Sean, and I've never said this to anybody before. I just thought about it in the last couple of days. I've now gone far enough in this that now people are coming to me. More and more the black community who are entrepreneurs are coming to me and saying, hey, can we talk? Yeah, It's so wonderful that it could happen that fast. It just shows you how easy this always was. You just have to act. Yeah. Well, it has to be authentic and real. That's what you made it. You made it, you took it beyond just a nice thing that you thought you should do to actually doing it. And I think particularly around investments and looking for the talent and finding people that might not have the perfect playbook experience, but broadening your networks, broadening your definition of what does success look like. Once you start doing that in a real way, I think you're absolutely right. I think it changes things very quickly 
because your actions are now speaking and you're embedded in networks in a real and authentic way versus just in a performative way. If I were a venture capitalist, I would consider a focus matter in this area because the equity has been so imbalanced. There's really such an opportunity here now. You know, when I look at the, the people that I'm talking to, if Dan Smith, is he, he's creating a, a, a startup right now in the home space. What he's doing is so powerful. And he's just one example. You know, Gary Cooper, I could go through others. They're so good at what they're doing. And yet it's remarkable they have trouble getting funding. I mean, I, I can't even believe it. There's like a backlog of opportunity that's stacked up. I do think as an if I, if I were investing only for the money and I'm not at all, I would say, boy, I'd go there anyway. Shout out to you for uh, recognizing that it wasn't just going out and, and mentoring. There's a sample who to attribute it to. So maybe I did research and we can put it in footnotes on the podcast if we're doing that. But uh, black entrepreneurs are over mentored and under invented. And so for you to immediately recognize, I'm just going to start cutting checks. And that's the way that I'm going to actually rectify this imbalance in my portfolio and drive impact is, is what's needed. And as you said, you quickly have built a reputation. I've had folks offer to introduce, to introduce you to me best in, in my fund. And I've you know, been able to say, nah, I already, me and Brack already go back. So I haven't had to take the introductions. But yeah, your, your reputation is formidable in the Black entrepreneur community already. One thing you're, you just made me think of, Sean, that I think is really important to think about, no matter where you're, whether you're an angel investor or you're, you're a, a person working in a company somewhere, and it is that the equivalent of cutting checks versus being a mentor, being helpful, is the same thing as the difference between being a sponsor and being a mentor. It's great to try to give somebody some good advice who wasn't getting it before, but it's a whole different ballgame if you really sponsor them. If you're really advocating strongly for them into the next job, into the next promotion, into the into the company at all, sponsorship is where the action is. You know that there's too much talk about mentorship and not enough talk about sponsorship. Sponsorship is the big critical X in careers. And and I heard Carlo, oh, what is her last name at J.P. Morgan or Morgan Stanley? Morgan Stanley. I heard her talking about Harry and Carlo Harris. Yeah. Yeah, I, I heard her talking about this yesterday, and and I thought she is right on target. I mean, it's sponsorship is so critical. It's like checks. I'm so grateful for both of you and just the fact that you're here and sharing some of the behind the scenes and your insights and really the journey. I mean, Bracken, if anything, what I take away from this is both in my own experience and knowing Sean, knowing you, that this is an evolution. It's a journey. And it's something that when you get that deep down motivation to make change, change is possible. And in a lot of ways, it's very hopeful. I mean, I think what I keep saying to people and what I see in leaders like the both of you is that we do have an opportunity to create systemic change. And even though sometimes it feels like the needle's not moving and it feels somewhat hopeless, I do think that if we continue to sort of build these networks and build these communities where people see potential and they see how they can put the stuff into action, we'll get there. We just have to have courage and we have to be persistent. So thank you for embodying all of that, Bracken, and for being here today on our, our first go at this. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been an honor. Appreciate you, Bracken. Thank you. I appreciate both of you. Thank you so much. And uh, I'll come back anytime, as long as you come and speak at my company. All right. <laughs> thank you. Deal. See you guys.